everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Big tech companies have dominated the business world for years, but what will the future hold? How can newer platforms and brands compete with their larger competitors and win? And why are more people in the commerce world not talking about a $6 trillion industry that's ripe for disruption? Alex Mozed, the founder and CEO of Applico and the co-author of the book, Modern Monopolies, breaks it all down on today's episode. Enjoy. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Alex, thanks for joining. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So today I was hoping we could start with a bit of history because I know we're going to be going into business models and, you know, what the future of business models could look like and, you know, how to start your own company in today's world. But first, I think starting with a bit of history would be very helpful from you of, you know, going through the different type of business models we've seen and then where we're at today. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, You know, if you go back now 25 years ago to you know, let's call it the early to mid 90s, we look at, you know, what life was like before the internet. A lot of your business models were what you would call very linear, traditional business models where you are taking a a product or a service of some sort, right? You're taking raw materials, you're then doing some, some manufacturing or some services that material, making it into a finished good and then selling that, right? If you're a manufacturer, if you're a distributor, you're, you're buying those products and then moving them around the country and then reselling them. Same thing as kind of a retailer. So those are very linear traditional businesses. Could be a manufacturer like Ford, could be, you know, Best Buy or Target, uh, on the retail side or B2B distributor as well. Same thing with a services business where you have a bunch of employees, they're providing some sort of a service, you pay for their payroll. Um, that's kind of your hard fixed cost. And then you make the margin on what you then can essentially sell those services for. The closest thing to what we're going to talk about more in a second are this kind of platform business model. You had like franchise type businesses, right? Which you see that a lot in kind of local home services still today. You see a bunch of franchise businesses that have a bunch of local service providers, but they kind of have a platform thing they'll like to tell you about where the franchise owner is essentially collecting kind of royalties, helping all these local services have a brand, have the tools they need to provide these services locally and, and run and manage that business on a, on a more regional level. 
You do have a concept of more traditional platform business models. I'm going to explain platform businesses in a second. Actually dating back thousands of years, if we want to go that, that far back, to a bazaar in ancient Rome. And merchants that have a booth, and then you have a bunch of people that come to your bazaar. And if you are the bazaar owner, you're essentially charging the merchants for that space or, or a mall uh, in the 20th century, right? Similar kind of idea, but you are connecting essentially your sellers with your consumers and a mall or a bazaar 2000 years ago is essentially enabling this exchange of value. And that's essentially at the core of what the platform business model does today. But the difference over the past 25 years has been really the advent of technology and data and really fast changing consumer behavior. You put all those things together and what, what it's essentially done is enabled this platform business model, which creates value by facilitating exchange as opposed to that more linear process, right? Where you take a, a raw good and then do some work to it and then resell it. But these platform business models are very asset light, right? They actually don't take possession over the inventory that they are enabling to be consumed. And so when you, when you kind of inject 21st century digital and, and business dynamics into the platform business model, which has been around for thousands of years, you now essentially create a very different animal. And what we've seen is that the platform business model in, in the digital context is really how we refer to it. And the book that I co-authored, Modern Monopolies, helps to define, uh, which Macmillan published in 2016. This model has, when compared to the other business models, has the highest profit margins. As a result of the having the highest profit margins, has the highest essentially multiples for those businesses. Uh, so if you're comparing that to linear businesses, if you're comparing that to linear tech businesses, which would, which would be what you would call a SaaS business, software as a service, right? Um, where you've created now a piece of software and you charge a fee for that software. Traditionally, what you would call a SaaS business. So the platform business model kind of reigns supreme overall um, in our analysis, which we published along with the book from both a profit margin and a valuation standpoint. The reason why is they have this winner-take-all dynamic. And the reason why you have a winner-take-all dynamic is because you actually have two different customer groups. You have a consumer on one side, which we're all familiar with, and then you have what you would call suppliers or really what we call producers. For an Airbnb, that could be someone owning a home and putting their home uh, on the platform or driving a car for Uber. For an Amazon, that could be you selling a product on Amazon. Uh, in a content platform like YouTube, that could be you putting a video on YouTube. In a development platform like iOS, that's you creating an app and putting an app on the platform. So the, the book goes much deeper into actually about eight different types of platform business models. All of these things at a high level um, have this producer and consumer concept and are creating value by facilitating the exchange of value. It's really that supply side network effect, which is very different if you think about this. When you capture a large audience of fragmented supply, that's what gives you this defensibility. That's what gives you this kind of lock-in and winner-take-all dynamic um, in recent times like Netflix, where Netflix is actually a platform imposter and you know has tried to say that they are a platform for years, whereas we've been saying also for years, they're not a platform. They don't have a supply-side network effect. They don't have a defensibility that a YouTube does. And therefore... You know, they can lose, I don't know, what, 80% of their value in the past six months. But I'll stop there. And, uh, and hopefully that kind of gives a, a brief history of, <laughs> of uh, some, some business models over the past, you know, 20, 100 years or so. Yeah, that's a good overview. So when thinking about if you were to maybe amend your book today, because a lot's changed, and you think about, you know, now the emergence of Web3 and how it's kind of moving to this, you know, trustless economy where you don't always need someone in between to be verifying that maybe this is the seller and they have the product or whatever that might be. What do you think now is the future business model um, in terms of platforms? Because it seems like, you know, the, I would say, more traditional platforms, the social media platforms that essentially were, you know, monetizing based off of an audience that you don't really own. Is kind of shifting away from that and moving in a different direction where, you know, 
the users are going to want to own their audience. They're going to want to be able to, you know, move from platform to platform, not be stuck to one. Seems like things have moved quick over the past two years, especially from when you wrote the book in 2016. So would there be any amendments that you would make today of like things to look out for? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the book, we we talk a little bit about crypto and blockchain and mm-hmm. um, what's going on there. And I think those are the values which Web3 and and also just everyday Americans or everyday users of social media are starting to say, hey, you know, I don't want you selling off all my information. I want to own my information. And and so you're seeing kind of widespread desire to have more control over your digital interactions, your digital persona, your your digital footprint, so to speak. The challenge is that even if you look at crypto, your altcoins or you know your Bitcoin, sure, it's it's built on the blockchain, but in order to actually affect trades, right? Just purely the blockchain itself doesn't actually get you all the way there, right? It's essentially the underlying protocol and it provides transparency and it provides a lot of of these attributes and 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 value propositions that kind of by inherently will exist if you are trading Bitcoin and that's tethered to the blockchain, right? But in order to actually go end to end on that transaction, you need to build a bunch of services around that. And that's actually where you are seeing a bunch of platform business models. Investment platforms are actually one type of platform business model as well. So I think you're, you're essentially seeing now investment platforms leveraging blockchain. But in order to actually do your, your trading and make it easy and, you know, to transfer fiat money into, you know, your, whatever your, your crypto coin is, right? There's just what we found is there's a lot of extra services and goodies that these consumers expect. And that doesn't just come out of the box with blockchain. So yeah. that's kind of the rub is then if you have a company, many of them platform, Coinbase is not a platform, by the way, building all these tools for your for these consumers, then they want to lock you in or as best they can, right? So now you've got this kind of inherent conflict between what the blockchain was originally created around and, and still lives and breathes a lot of today and versus what private enterprise would, would like to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then thinking about like an open sea for an NFTs, that's considered a platform because of the yeah, supply that's being uploaded every single day. And you can transfer that to other places, which is like the whole you know, hope, I guess, of what people are looking for in the future to be able to take and move it if you want to, to a different platform. OpenSea is a great example. Mm-hmm. Absolutely a platform enabling the exchange of your NFTs. I use OpenSea. But yeah, they do a lot of things to make sure that you that you buy and sell your NFTs on OpenSea. Oh, yeah, for sure. Not anywhere else, right? Yeah. So yes, you can bring it elsewhere. And, and because of Web3 and the underlying protocols, it is going to be inherently easier for you if you did want to go somewhere else for you to take that transaction elsewhere. Then let's say if it was built on not an open protocol like the blockchain, then obviously it's just going to be a higher barrier and everything is going to be proprietary to the platform. So we are making strides, but at the same time, I don't think we've kind of reached uh this utopia where, <laughs> you know, it is truly easily portable and we can kind of flow in and out, right? There are always kind of barriers that these kinds of businesses put up in order for them. That's how they can command these unicorn valuations and big funding rounds and, and, then, and then their take rates, which are also very handsome uh, on top of that. Yeah, but they'll have to make sure they keep up with their, you know, competitors when thinking about what are the take rates, what are the incentives to keep someone here? Because I think that's Maybe what's most exciting when thinking about these different models is that these companies will have to compete in a way that maybe the Twitters, the Facebooks didn't have to because one, you couldn't port your audience and they could charge whatever they wanted to when it comes to, you know, maybe the ads or whatever you were paying to be on that platform. Even if you didn't realize you were paying to be on there, you didn't have a chance to move somewhere else and there was no competition. And so I think that's what's most exciting thinking about all these opportunities that are just waiting around, you know, new use cases and maybe providing the platform that can help serve these more niche communities and what people are looking for, but in a way that you still have to remain competitive. Like it's a very different mindset than I'd say, you know, over the past decade. It, it is. And, and so I, I agree with what you're saying. 
there is a rub, right? So when I bought my MFers on OpenSea, those gas fees are are really high, right? I mean, you're paying like 50 bucks each time. I don't know, whatever it was, just to buy the thing. And then when you want to relist it, you got to pay the gas fee again. And again, you go to a proprietary model where it's all kind of self-contained inside of OpenSea or something to that effect. You would expect to have those, those, what you would, you know, those kind of transaction costs go down. You know, it's nothing is ever perfect, but I, you know, I think for, for folks that understand that having a more open, transparent, portable, you know, type of online environment, you got to be willing to pay for it essentially, right? Because the platform is not going to subsidize those costs. And in exchange for that, there's going to be essentially this third party community called, uh, you know, essentially the, I don't know what, the Bitcoin mining community to get their machines hacking away and doing all the hashes to verify this transaction to the broader community, right? And so that cost would normally be subsidized by the platform and that, and the platform is happy to do that because it helps add to the lock-in. So, you know, it's very interesting to see this kind of uh, a more hybrid model where these platform businesses have less lock-in, users arguably have higher transactional fees to participate. And that's essentially the benefit they're paying for is that portable nature where they kind of have more ownership and I guess freedom to move from platform to platform. It's a very interesting uh, version, right? If you think about kind of the first wave of more what you call proprietary platform businesses, that exists just using all their own protocols, right? And the only way that you could kind of somewhat seamlessly transfer your information or your your assets or whatever it is to another platform, those two platforms need to essentially do deals with each other and kind of have some kind of a handshake agreement, which normally isn't going to happen unless they have some kind of leverage on each other or some kind of complementary nature to their business mix, right? But you're not seeing Facebook and Google play nice and just say, yeah, we're going to easily allow users to go back and forth, right? They're, they Platform wars are intense and very expensive and very real. And they hate each other with some of the deepest passion you'll ever find. So, yeah. So if I were, you know, to be a new founder today and I'm thinking, okay, I know you had a quote that said it's less about the product and more about the platform. And you're very bullish on platform companies like what are maybe opportunities that you're seeing that, you know, new founders can get involved in or how should they think about this today? Yeah, you know, it's um, we've tracked over the years the the amount of what you would call like first financings. And if you look at maybe the first half of the 2010 decade, right from 2010 to 2020, first half of that, you had a year over year increase on first financings in the U.S. Second half of that. Right in the middle, it started to plateau, and then the second half of that started to come down. And it, it, if you think about these mega, what we would call development platforms, which are going to allow other tech companies to then build and innovate and create on top of that development platform, you had the internet right in the 90s, and then smartphones, and somewhat to a degree, your your consoles, and and uh, and all of that, but. You know, I think when you look at that 2010 to 2015, 2016 chart, strong correlation of first financings increasing year over year with the smart, you know, the advent of the smartphone. Mm-hmm. Can you define first financings for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, first financing is, is essentially going to be your first proper fundraise. So kind of like the first thing beyond a purely like friends and family round, which isn't really going to get like a series A. Um, I mean, these days you're seeing you're seeing seed rounds as first financings. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. maybe yeah, ten years ago, seven years ago, that'd be your A. These days you're seeing like three or five million dollar seed rounds, which is also crazy. But um, but yeah, you're raising yep. you know a million bucks or a few million bucks, something around there would traditionally be your first financing. And so you've started to see that go down where you kind of say, well, you know, what's the next app I'm going to go and create? You know, you say, well, where else am I going to find kind of new innovation, new creativity? I think Web3, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff, right? Where 
you're seeing entire businesses just kind of created in the ether of the blockchain and crypto worlds, right? So that's certainly been helpful in, in the past few years in particular, right? We're talking about OpenSea. I mean, you're having now unicorns coming out of this space. Some are platform businesses, some are not. Doesn't really matter as long as, you know, I'd like to see that first financing number continuously increasing as opposed to plateauing or, or decreasing, right? I would say in general, you, you do see a lack of new development platforms come into the horizon, right? If you think about the past 20, 25 years, it was like the perfect time to go start a tech startup between the internet and PCs and, and, and computers and then smartphones, right? You just had so much opportunity to disrupt and, and, and solve problems in new and interesting ways. What's the latest and greatest thing now, right? It was supposed to be like your Google goggles. Then, you know, those went away. A lot of talk about the autonomous car and, and, and connected vehicles that went away. You know, what is it now? Uh, there's Web3. Web3 is not getting the numbers back to kind of the heyday of the internet and smartphone. Those were really some special years. So where do you look now? In my world, you're seeing a lot of stuff in the more industrial industries, supply chain industries. Amazon just came out with a billion dollar uh, venture fund looking at the supply chain. Home Depot just came out with a $150 million similarly, somewhat similarly focused VC fund. But you have more of these kind of B2B type worlds where lots of heavy focus past 20 years or so on, on the consumer. But I think in general, if you re really, you know, 50,000 square foot view, you start looking at some of these industrial sectors where now you're seeing a lot of these consumer trends and consumer behavior seeping into the individuals at the enterprise. That's where I would in general say there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, massive, massive industries, and arguably underfunded in terms of venture capital dollars and venture capital focus, which I'd say is actually a good thing if you're looking to start a business now. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. What's a good example of if you think of, you know, a supply chain opportunity or an industrial one, like what would come to mind to you if you, Alex, would start a business in that area today? I'd love to hear a good example. Yeah, so um, we actually do a lot of work in B2B distribution. B2B distribution is actually the largest industry in the United States. It's over $6 trillion in size. It's literally the largest industry and no one even talks about it or kind of even knows about it. You go to these supply chain conferences all about logistics companies and 3PLs and like trucking, right? You hear all about supply chain, supply, supply chain. Yeah. You're either talking about manufacturers or you're talking about truckers and 3PLs. No one actually talks about the B2B distributors which are the ones who actually take the inventory risk, the logistics and the 3PLs, they are providing a service to get your product from point A to point B. The B2B distributors are buying the product, taking it on balance sheet, often doing some kind of value-added services to the product. So in the metal industry, you know, you, you buy the metal from a mill, you know, it needs to be cut or it needs to be fine-tuned or, you know, it needs some other value-added services done to it, right? And you see that in the chemical industry, you see this in the food industry, you see this in just about every vertical of B2B distribution. So you need someone who's going to take the inventory risk, do some extra value added services to it, while also taking larger orders of, of product, breaking it down to smaller orders, placing it near the end customer, right? And, and solving the fulfillment challenge of everything. And uh, yeah, there is just a massive gap there. And each one of those verticals of B2B distribution is at least $100 billion in size, right? So so what could someone come in and do then? Like, what could a company come in and do to innovate in that area? Or how could, like, what are the big problems? And I don't know much about that industry. So that's why I'm like trying to actually hear, like, what could a business be then to come in and disrupt that? So, so that's the thing. So there are B2B marketplaces, type of platform business, 
who are trying to disrupt the distributors. And uh, there are VC funds that are starting to focus on funding the B2B marketplaces. At the same time, you have then trillions and trillions of dollars worth of B2B distribution volume, which actually, you know, you look at this and you say, who's trying to help the incumbents evolve and stay competitive? And I think overall, if you look at just where you need more parity or how do you get to more parity? You look at B2C the past 20 years and you look at how dominant these tech monopolies have become and you look at what went wrong. Say what went wrong is that you had very dominant disruptive, pretty much most of them from a, who are now tech monopolies are, were and, and now are platform businesses, actually platform conglomerates. But the missing link past 20 years on B2C and retail and Amazon being so dominant and all these companies becoming so dominant is the incumbents. Your large multi-billion dollar incumbents, frankly, missed the ball. They had the scale. They had the capital. They had the brand. They had a lot of those assets. They had a lot of infrastructure and hard assets. But they, they were not able to keep up with the rate of digital just innovation, business model innovation. So you look at this script kind of being repeated somewhat, you know, to the same degree or a similar degree next 20 years on the industrial side here. And everyone is kind of ignoring the incumbents once again, right? But these incumbents, the large traditional businesses in the supply chain world and the B2B distribution, they can see what happened to the B2C players, right? Look at if you're a retailer. There's a few retailers who have been able to navigate and do very well for different reasons, but in large part, retailers not had the best 20, past 20 years. So these incumbents on the B2B side can look at that and choose a different path, right? And lean in and say, hey, we want to get out in front of this. We know that we need to invest. We know we need to take more risks than maybe our you know, similar peer of 20 years ago in retail did. And so I think that's the big difference. Who's going to help the incumbents evolve and change and disrupt and embrace these new models. And if you look at just the past two, two and a half years here with COVID, what have you actually seen is you've actually seen an even greater shift to the large traditional players that when a crisis comes and our just in time economy falls flat on its face, you then revert back to who actually has the hard physical assets, right? Who actually has the trucks and the drivers? Right. And the, and the warehouse and the fulfillment capability. And it's actually not the tech companies. And so, you know, I think you look ahead at the future and you've now seen a just, I think people value once again, hard physical assets. And now you have these hard physical asset, large incumbents who are really leaning into digitization and uh, they're looking for the next wave of partners. Of, of tech startups that bring a great product and a team and a capability to the table. And they want to try and figure out how to work with them, how to buy them, how to invest in them, how to partner with them. And I think that's what's going to, we look at the next 20 years or so, next 15 years of saying, how do we not, how do we prevent Amazon from doing to B2B what they did to B2C the past 20 years? It's really about the convergence of your traditional players and the tech community. How do they work together? to bring more parity and balance to the supply chain world of disruption than, than we saw on the B2C side. And, and that I think, so if I'm, if, hopefully that helps narrow it, but um, there's a big gap there. There's, a, there's so much opportunity if I was looking to go start a business these days and wanted to venture out into some, some new territory. Yeah, really interesting. And I'm just thinking about, I mean, I was listening to a show about Amazon and how they, you know, are really becoming way more sophisticated when it comes to their supply chain and all their fulfillment centers are opening and changing. And after hearing that, I was definitely a little like, how could anyone compete with the scale and the resources they have? And I mean, it does seem like they were able to pivot really quickly during the past two years to kind of change it to what it needed to be. And so that's my only, I guess, concern is like, man, how do you compete with someone who has the scale that they do? And I mean, there are, you definitely see smaller players popping up right now. I mean, we just had um, Shippo on the show and they were telling us all about these smaller players, you know, localized that are going to become very competitive and they already are becoming competitive, but they're definitely more localized. But yeah, I mean, how do you 
how do you think about, you know, a company coming in and competing with something like an Amazon and getting to a larger scale that isn't on this like local level? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we published a report last year ranking the top 50 B2B marketplaces. So these are um, not service marketplaces, which would be more of a kind of logistics, right? 3PL type of, but these are product marketplaces, right? So more specifically what it, Amazon, right? Amazon's a product marketplace. So Amazon has a thing called Amazon Business. It's actually one of their like five horsemen, they call it kind of like their next big initiatives. Yeah. Last year, it was, about, it was doing about $25 billion in GMV, growing at, I don't know, maybe 30, 40% Hager annual growth rate. So doing a good amount of volume, but we, we ranked the top 50 independent B2B marketplaces, right? Who are directly competing against Amazon. And these are more of your vertical specific marketplaces, right? They're independent startups. They're not able to go across every vertical of B2B like Amazon is doing. They're focusing in each vertical. By the way, again, each vertical over $100 billion in size, right? So our top 50 at that time when we published this, their aggregate GMV, gross merchandise volume, which is basically the total throughput on the marketplace, was anywhere between 75 to $100 billion. It's not all public. They don't all publicly disclose. But still, you had 3 to 4x the volume of what Amazon Business was doing from the top 50 independent players, right? Then you think 20 years ago where we were on B2C, very different story, right? Of, of where Amazon was in the early days of B2C and retail and e-commerce. They were just coming into things in, in a much more dominant relative position. So these B2B marketplaces, now you've got over 10 of them that have, you know, unicorn valuations. Actually, our number one a company in the ranking at the time was worth a couple billion dollars. Now they just raised it a $12 billion valuation pre the past couple months here of crazy tech valuation haircuts. But, but still, these companies are now getting a pretty good scale volume capital. And once you get to that scale and that capital fundraising ability, what can you start to do? You can start to invest in infrastructure and fulfillment and kind of hard physical assets, which when you get into these more industrial and supply chain oriented industries, and as we've seen with Amazon's growth, particularly the past five, 10 years, a lot of it is attributed to their investment in fulfillment and hard physical assets, right? So that's really the interesting thing with these, with these platform and these marketplace business models is the best ones actually are not one or the other. The best ones are actually both. You have a platform model, an asset light model, but you then couple that with a linear business model. With Amazon, it's they're fulfilled by Amazon services and all the fees that they're charging for fulfillment and the rents they're charging for their sellers to store products in their warehouse, right? And now they're launching a fulfillment service for, for anyone that wants to just ship products on kind of Amazon's now fulfillment network irrespective of it, if that's being sold through Amazon, right? So the, the best platform monopolies today, your best tech monopolies today, actually have multiple business models and they actually have both platform and linear business models. So you are seeing vertical specific marketplaces able to get there. There's a lot more room to go. There's a lot more that the industry at large could do to help your independent startups compete against your big bad tech monopolies. And the good news there is these incumbents, big or small, your traditional players in the supply chain industry have now 20 plus years of precedent where they can go look at, hey, so how do things turn out when you have a large tech monopoly dominate one industry? <laughs> and the answer is not so hot for the producers. That's actually who gets taken advantage of. It's actually not the consumers that get taken advantage of. Actually, the suppliers who get taken advantage of and go down the list, every single large tech monopoly, who do they turn the screws on and extract more margin and value out of when they get to that monopolistic dominance? It's the supplier. It's a seller, third-party seller on Amazon. It's the advertiser on Google, that uh, content creator on Facebook that you know, can just get kicked off if you talk about things that the, the platform doesn't want you to talk about, right? Like what growing content platform actually kicks off their creators? <laughs> you just don't do that, 
that's a sign of taking advantage of your of your producers, of your creators, either charging them money to get more followers in form of ads or taking advantage of their ability to create content and and exercise their right of free speech. You just see platform monopolies taking advantage of producers time and time again. It's actually what Microsoft got in trouble for in the 90s, by the way, was favoring their own Internet Explorer app versus other third-party apps. That's where all these platforms tend to get in trouble is is, uh, taking advantage of third-party suppliers. So last point there is the supply chain industry has seen this. They're actually pretty smart to this. And I think generally they would like to try and support your up-and-coming David and Goliath story when possible and uh, and try to experiment. So the you know the stage is set for for this to be a very different battle um than the past 20 years. Yeah. I mean that's all super exciting. I love the idea of getting into like the vertical specific marketplaces. I mean that also to me is the way of the future. You see that where people want more and more, you know, curated marketplaces. Amazon sometimes I think can feel too overwhelming. I have the business version and I'm like it's too overwhelming for my specific business. I don't need everything on there. So I think yeah, you see consumers wanting that. And of course, you know, a B2B consumer is the same thing now as a B2C one. We're going to have the same preferences, to, you know, regardless of if we're at work or if we're shopping online personally, it's going to be very similar. So that's really cool thinking about yeah, the different verticals that are coming up. It's awesome. And the last piece that a lot of my guests have been talking about is the retail media networks that are popping up with Amazon, of course, having the largest one right now. Um, I think, you know, that's when Amazon is essentially is letting their merchants putting ads on the platform to showcase their products. They have their own ad network now. Walmart's doing it. Instacart's doing it. But Amazon, I think they're taking like 75% of all ad revenue within retail media right now. And to me, that's just like one more thing where I'm like, oh, wow, if all the people are putting, you know, their ad spend onto this network, and now that's kind of where things are shifting to. They all got burned by Facebook. They got burned many times in the past by relying on one platform to be where they get all their customers from to now investing a lot of their money there. That also just seems like a bigger moat is being built around Amazon when you see that not only what are they doing on the back end, but then also what they're doing on the front end to basically get merchants more involved and using their platform more than they ever have to attract and find new customers. So that's my only last piece around like, oh, how do you compete with Amazon outside of the vertical industries, which I really like that idea. But yeah, it just seems like they're doing such a good job of really like building this moat to try and keep their merchants there and uh, the customers, you know, staying on the platform. Yeah. Of your large tech monopolies, FAMGA, right? Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple. Amazon easily is the one that I would say has the strongest growth prospects and potential. Mm -hmm. They just have so much more room to grow in their core monopoly, which is Amazon B2C marketplace, right? You could say then they've got a second strong kind of monopolistic cash cow stage business uh, with AWS, obviously. But then they have these other up and coming initiatives where now they're launching this logistics service. They are um, doing all the, the stuff with Amazon business that we've talked about, the smart devices and, and many other things that they're doing. So they are really humming. And I think Andy Jassy was a great selection as CEO, really putting that innovator who's willing to take risks. He was the guy who, who, ba- who basically said, Hey, we should go like create this new thing called AWS, right? Yep. And got that going. And so I think you can see Jeff really putting him into power to kind of say, this is what we need to continue to focus on to, to win going forward. And they do have so much potential. Whereas you look at the other monopolies now are run by more professional managers. And, and I think Facebook is having a lot of struggles and I think they've become way too sensor friendly. And that's really shot themselves in the foot, which is which is a good thing. But um, I don't know if they'll get over that anytime soon. So how can you compete? So you can, you know, vertical specific marketplaces are absolutely a thing, not only in B2B, but in B2C. You need incumbents and you need traditional players to really lean in and say, how do we embrace these new business models? How do we work with the startup community and actually, you know, one plus one equals three, as opposed to what you see Nike doing, suing StockX, right? Possibly one of the dumbest corporate moves I've seen in the past few years. The, 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 the current CEO of Nike is the former CEO of eBay. Like the guy understands marketplaces. And instead of like looking at what Foot Locker did a few years ago, where they wrote a hundred million dollar check into GOAT, StockX's biggest vertical specific sneaker marketplace competitor, 
Nike decides to sue StockX, right? Like, genius. Let's only sue one of them, first of all. So we we make StockX clearly the winner in the industry, right? Make a point. And why don't you try and do something on your own if you really care about sustainability in the environment, first and foremost, right? Nike hasn't really done anything material in that space. And just this whole movement of secondary, secondhand clothing, um, which could be in sneakers. It could just be in actual just shirts and shorts. And there's a whole new industry there in in secondhand clothing, which is very exciting. I would argue it's a whole industry in and of itself on par with new clothing. You should look at secondhand clothing as its own industry. Nike's just frankly not doing anything exciting. And so it starts with what are the large players, the incumbents, the traditional players? Are you really leaning in? And I think Adidas is doing some interesting things with secondhand and embracing marketplace models with secondhand. You know, you're, who are supposed to be your kind of iconic brands, innovators, former CEO of eBay, doing nothing exciting, right? So you're not going to be able to keep Amazon and the tech monopolies in check unless you have the other industry participants making moves. Second point is your mid-market platform businesses. So you're, you know, uh, 50 billion, 100 billion, um, hundreds billions valuation, low hundreds billions valuation. That's what I would call your, <laughs> ironically, your, your kind of mid market platform, public platform stocks. They are actually able to engage in MA. And so this is good news in the fight against big tech is large tech monopolies are not actually able to use MA as they have in the past with the amount of just scrutiny. And everyone kind of waking up to, I mean, you look at large tech monopolies and how they've used M&A. Every single one of FAMGA has used it um, in a very, very successful manner. Amazon buying Twitch for a billion dollars, right? Amazing. Facebook buying WhatsApp and Instagram. Google buying YouTube, right? I mean, the list just goes on and on. So with your large tech monopolies handicapped and, and unable to use M&A as they used to, it's much more difficult for them to spin up new businesses, right? Or get into completely new models. It's very hard for them to go and build these things from scratch, which is good. So you're seeing Salesforce buy Slack. Great acquisition. You're seeing Etsy buy a secondhand clothing marketplace in Europe called Vinted, buy kind of like an Etsy clone in Brazil. Love those deals, right? You're seeing Spotify try to become a platform where Spotify's business is actually more linear with, with the podcasting business they're getting in. They're buying some like smaller pad podcasting startups. They're making big contract and media deals with Joe Rogan and others. So you're seeing Spotify try to become more of a platform and get that fragmented supply in the podcasting community. You're seeing those mid-market mid-sized linear tech players try to use M&A to become more platform heavy, right? How do you have that hybrid platform and linear business model work together? So you're seeing a lot of really exciting things in kind of that mid, mid-market of tech company use M&A to help accelerate their ability to diversify their business model and, and strengthen kind of existing markets. That's really exciting. So that's really good in the fight against these big tech monopolies. And... uh yeah, those, I don't know, those couple things, I'd say big steps in the right direction. Probably the third thing would be government. Uh, you've now seen some successful examples, not in the US. The US doesn't really know what it's doing. It's, it's, it's frankly pathetic. But if you look at Australia, the Australian government forcing Facebook and Google to pay media companies, right? Now you're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars flow to the media companies. And what does that do? It allows the media companies to restore some ounce of credibility in their reporting where the current environment we have with media is it's just a it's a race to the bottom who can create the more confrontational and exacerbating much of it fake news story that the algorithm on Facebook and Google is then going to promote gets engagement and they can sell more ads. So it's a real vicious cycle. So you've seen the Australian government put law, an actual law into place, um, which forces the tech monopolies to write checks, right? And actually make a business and an industry, which was kind of rendered essentially, you know, bankrupt and completely dependent on the tech monopolies now actually have some ability to have uh, <laughs> some control over their own destiny and, and hopefully a return to credibility in, in the news industry. 
That's why we don't work on that model. Because yes, race to the bottom. We'd rather have our lovely sponsors like Salesforce sponsor the show and we can just make good content and not have to try and make clickbait headlines and work off of CPM deals and things that I think don't have the best incentives. Yeah, it's it, it, and it's really unfortunate. You've, and lastly, I'll also talk about India. India has done a great job uh, banning TikTok from India in literally not even 12 months from when they banned TikTok. They now have an Indian unicorn who's raised over a billion dollars in capital, right? They banned TikTok, <laughs> um, which has all kinds of national security issues and concerns because the data goes right to the CCP. They banned TikTok. And now a local Indian tech company raises over a billion dollars, creating jobs for the Indian you know, tech community and bringing more standards and accountability to data protection of the Indian user. And so you're seeing certain examples, not in the U.S., unfortunately, but elsewhere in the world where government can actually help to rein in big tech, help promote safety and uh, um, data protection standards while also doing good for the tech community and, and the startup community, right? Um, just not the U.S. Maybe eventually we'll get there, but I haven't been holding my breath. Yeah, maybe one day. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. All right, well, let's shift over with the last few minutes, shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Alex? Yeah, okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. First, what are two of your most gifted books that you give to others? And it can't be yours. Two of my most gifted books. So Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, great book, really just kind of saying, hey, if you're going to start a business, you should try and start a monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good compliment uh, to, to my book in the tech world. Other than that, it's some mixture of Atlas Shrugged or 1984. Mm -hmm. Probably Atlas Shrugged. Uh, more than 1984. But if you're an aspiring entrepreneur, I read that when I was in college and um, try to reread it every few years. Really a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Mm -hmm. Yes, two good ones. What looks unsustainable, but it's actually just a trend we haven't accepted yet? Printing money supply? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> I mean, I, you would think it's unsustainable, but we just continue to do it and keep doing it at no end. Well, we'll find out in the next yeah, year or two. Uh, I think we'll probably find out something. <laughs> you know, the only the only thing that, you know, I say, wow, you print almost $10 trillion. That can't be sustainable. And now, yes, you fortunately are seeing markets take some haircuts, which have been badly needed for a long time. But you got to understand, we just printed basically $10 trillion. I mean, it's insane. And it wipes out your lower and middle classes. It just erases value. Um, it's really, really bad and unfortunate what's happening um, from, from kind of a monetary uh, policy standpoint. But, but then you look at China. If we're printing $10 trillion, China's printing 30. And they've been, they started it long before COVID. So you just say to yourself, yeah, I don't know. Is this an unsustainable trend? I mean, China had a self-contained economy, but now they are expanding it elsewhere throughout Asia, right? Belt and Road and all this stuff. And they, are, I mean, if we think we print a lot, we print nothing compared to China. And yeah, do they have a Ponzi going? Probably. Do we have a Ponzi going? Probably a little bit. And we're seeing some of that come back, which is good. But uh, I mean, there, I mean, I, it seems like there should be a much larger correction, frankly, but I don't know. Then if there is, we'll probably just print more money again. So I, you would hope it's unsustainable, but I feel like we've like passed the point of no return. You're just going to keep printing until you can't. I don't know. It's a new trend. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hot take. I like it. What do you not understand today and wish you understood better? Like everything. I, I literally think I'm living in in a sci-fi novel. I actually literally think I'm living in the book 1984. I wake up and, you know, I look at what's going on and I say, wow, yeah, this is real life. Um, it's insane. It's just really sad how, how as a society that prides itself and has been around now for, you know, over 200 years, how fast we've kind of trodden on our basic American values and principles and, and how divided as a community we've gotten about what those values and principles are. And it's, and, and just in, in such a short period of time, how we have trampled, absolutely trampled, um, that value system. It's, it's sad and it doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I don't think it ever will. I, I, I don't know. 
It's unfortunate. Man. All right. Well, the last one, what's the next big step that you need to take? Either it can be your company, personally. What's the next big step you know you need to take? Just having a lot of babies, I think. Uh, we have one. <laughs> nice. That's been great so far. And you you might have heard a little bit of him in some of these uh, earlier recordings. I did. I did. Um, <laughs> and he's getting vocal. Um, and yeah, just, you know, I think at the end of the day, you got to look at it and you got to say, hey, I love what I do. I want to keep doing it. Um, and I can keep doing it and will keep doing it. And at the same time, though, you look at just society and all the chaos and madness that's going, you got to live your life. You got to enjoy your life. Because if you get too hopped up in what society wants you to be and this and that, and then you realize like, you know, it's actually just a lot of it's just a bunch of BS. Um, and you can't just kind of cater to what society thinks you should do or be, right? You got to just do what you want to do and you got to live your life. You don't have much time. So um, that means babies. Yep. And uh, I think we're going to do a good job at that. Nice. I, I will say, I think having multiple kids changes your perspective on things. And like you said, most things uh, that you thought were important actually are not. So yeah, I have three and I can attest for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Alex, thanks for hopping on the show today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? I mean, you can go to our website, applicoinc.com. And I mean, we have a YouTube show called Winner Take All. Um, but I hate YouTube. And um, if you're on any of the kind of more free speech platforms, we're on all of those. And you should just follow us there instead because, you know, YouTube is the big bad devil. I like it. All right. Thanks, Alec. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.